Well, this morning we're going to continue looking at the individual messages to the seven churches that we find in Revelation 2 and 3. And to begin, we're actually going to finish last week's lesson. We didn't get to finish all of it. And that is, of course, the message to the church in Ephesus. That's the first letter that we come to. And that would have been the first location in which this entire letter, uh, really book of Revelation, would have been sent in that circular pattern from the various cities. And of course, we focused there on the comprehension that Jesus has of the church. And every or this particular comprehension involves both commendations and a challenge. Uh, not every uh, message has um, a challenge of something that they were uh, really need to work on. Uh, every church did have some kind of challenge that they were facing, uh, but this is something that we see about Jesus's comprehension. And of course, if you remember there in verses 2 and 3 of Revelation 2, uh, Jesus personally commended the conduct of the church as well as their convictions and character. And we considered that when he says, I know thy works, that's the conduct, thy labor and patience, that's how they did their works, uh, but also their convictions. They could not bear those who are evil. And when they heard that there were some that said they were apostles but were not, they tried them and had found them to be liars. And, of course, that was their conviction of the truth. And then uh, we also see their character in that this was a continuing thing, right? There in verse 3, they, uh, they born under, they hast born. They were enduring through these trials and had patience. And Jesus says, for my name's sake, hast labored and hast not fainted. So those are some of the personal commendations of Jesus and what a commendation that is. Uh, may that be our desire, that Jesus would say the same things about us at our church, about our conduct and convictions and character. Uh, there was another one that we find in verse 6. If you jump down there, Jesus also commended them for having the right kind of contempt, which is actually kind of a, a surprising commendation. Uh, but it was the same kind of hatred that Jesus himself had. Uh, there are some things that we as Christians ought to be known for in hating, uh, just like Jesus himself. This thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so those are four personal commendations of Jesus toward this church. Uh, but they still faced a challenge. In, in spite of all of these good things going for the church there in Ephesus, there in verse 4, we find the challenge, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. And we spent a little time looking at what that meant. Um, that first love likely involved both their love for the Lord and their love for each other. So uh, certainly the primary love that every Christian, every church ought to have is that vertical love that we have toward the Lord. But that will be reflected in how we treat each other, especially within the church of God. And so we see that horizontal love as well. But we also see that true love, true love that reflects the Lord, is not going to compromise with the truth. And so we see the commendation of their conviction about the truth and their contempt for evil really kind of showing that even though they may have left their first love, um, they still needed to hold to that truth. So that reminds us of what Paul says, that we are to be speaking the truth in love. And so you have both, not just one or the other. Uh, 
But then in verse 5, if you remember, Jesus called them back to that first love by issuing three commands. And those commands were to affect their, their minds, first of all, then, of course, their wills, and then their actions. And so it comes from one to the other. Remember, therefore, that's your mind, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, that is an effect of their will, and then do, that's their actions, the first works. So the church in Ephesus was to return to doing their first works with the first kind of love. And that really is what their challenge was. Uh, but this is where we left off uh, as far as last week. Uh, if they didn't return, if they didn't remember, if they didn't re repent, if they didn't do the first works as both a warning and an encouragement, we find the fifth part of the message, which is Jesus's consequences to the church. And this is actually point five from last Sunday's lesson. Um, you may just have to jot it down if you didn't have one of those sheets and put it on later. Uh, but if you look at the last part of verse five, Jesus says, or else, and that's how we ended last week's lesson, or else, I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. So there are consequences if they do not comply with the commands that Jesus gives them to overcome the challenge that they face of leaving their first love behind them. In this warning, we're reminded of the symbol that was used to describe the churches back in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 20. In fact, if you, it may even be on the same page there, where we learned that the seven candlesticks, which John saw in this spectacular vision, they were the seven churches. And so the candlestick, each candlestick represented one of those churches. And of course, that is what Jesus is referring to here in verse 5. Uh, you need to repent and remember and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Now, the question is, what does this mean? What does this consequence actually entail? Uh, that has been a debate probably since this was first written. Uh, the meaning of this consequence really has been looked at several different ways. Uh, first of all, it could mean that the church will just lose its testimony there in the city that God placed us placed it. Uh, it's testimony in Ephesus. And though that certainly would be true for any church that leaves their first love, I mean, our testimony will, you know, certainly not be the same as it could be if we were doing the first works with the first love. It does seem to be more than this. Uh, it does have a sense that there's something more than just losing their testimony. Um, some believe that this church, the, the meaning of this consequence would be that the church would cease to exist as a whole in the city of Ephesus. Um, and that certainly is possible in the organized sense. Again, most of these churches were probably not just one big congregation, but rather multiple congregations meeting in the city, and maybe they eventually would meet together in different places at different times. Um, but truly, when any Christian is present, there is the church. And so even though the, the localized sense of the church might be removed out of the city of Ephesus, um, the church could still be there as long as there are believers in Christ there. So does this mean that there won't be any Christian witness in the city of Ephesus because they left their first love? Uh, seems like that's more of a punishment to the city of Ephesus than to the church itself. Um, another way of looking at this is that the church would lose its influence in her communities. 
And the communities, of course, in which this, that this church was placed in is not just in the city, but the influence that the church in Ephesus had over the churches in all of the other areas. Uh, we're going to be looking here at Smyrna, and that was just about 40 miles north of Ephesus. And God had used Ephesus as sort of a training ground, likely, of other believers coming. Uh, in fact, when, when Paul was writing to the church in Colossae, uh, it, it seems like that one of the uh, members there, or the pastors there, had learned some things from Paul himself, likely in the city of Ephesus, and went back in order to lead the church there. So there was an influence by the Ephesian church to the community and the churches around them, and even though we're not entirely sure, this latter consequence seems to have the best support. Uh, because ultimately what Jesus was doing was warning them that he would humble them if they did not humble themselves. And remember, pride was something that was an issue in the Ephesian church and, and could very well have easily been an issue in the Smyrna church, as we're going to see here shortly. Um, but one of the reasons why we don't know for certain uh, which one of these suggestions it is, or maybe another one entirely different, is because about 15 years or so after the church in Ephesus received this message in Revelation, uh, of course, by Jesus, through the hand of John, they actually received another letter by a pastor in Antioch. Uh, this is not something we find in the Bible. It is something that we find in church history. His name was Ignatius, and he actually wrote a letter to the Ephesians, and you can actually pull it up online and read about it. He commends the faithfulness of the church in Ephesus to the Lord. He commends them, just much like what Jesus was doing in the first part of this letter. And so at least 15 years after Revelation was written, it seems like they did remember, they did repent, and they did do the first works because whatever this meant, the candlestick being removed, it was still there. It was still there in all of its intensity and also all of its influence. So it seems that the generation of the church that received this message in Revelation did do what God called them to do, and so their candlestick remained in its place. In fact, we have records of this church in Ephesus being an influential part of the body of Christ all the way up until the 5th century. And so whatever this meant about the candlestick being removed, we're not entirely sure because it's clear that it was not removed, at least until the 5th century. Uh, in fact, in 431, there was actually uh, a church council was held in Ephesus, uh, um, a, a wide council in which some of the doctrines that were done previously to that were upheld by this church council. So um, certainly the consequence was there, but like all Christians should, when we hear these warnings, uh, not only they, are they a challenge to us, but they should also encourage us to do what God wants us to do. So they heard it. And really, that ought to be our response anytime the, the word of God is opened. We ought to say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth, so that we are ready to obey what he tells us to do. And of course, in this letter, he says, remember, repent, and do thy first works, certainly with thy first love. And then, of course, to finish up his message, in verse 7, we see the final two parts of this message that we see in every other message, his call and his comfort to the church. And of course, this is to further encourage them to comply with his commands. He that hath an ear, Jesus says, let him, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, 
And of course, overcoming means that they comply with the commands of Jesus. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, one um, element that I wasn't familiar with, and, uh, with until this last week there in Ephesus, we talked about that big um, temple that was constructed to Diana. It was a, uh, a, an ancient wonder of the world. And I wasn't aware of this, um, but apparently there was a tree, a large tree that had been planted right there by the, by the temple there in, in Ephesus. And it was known as a tree of life. Uh, people would be able to go up to that and they would be able to touch it to receive its blessing, if you will. Obviously, it was an idolatrous act. Uh, it was part of their worship. But you can kind of get a sense that Jesus was speaking to the church in a culture and saying, that is not where you're going to find life or healing or help or hope in your life. It's about me. I will give you that tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So when you repent, when you remember, when you return to me, you receive these precious promises. So that is Jesus' message to the angel and to the church there in Ephesus. Now before we move on, are there any questions that we didn't get to or feel last Sunday uh, dealing with the message to the church there in Ephesus? Well, And we kind of looked at this last Sunday. Um, I think the primary idea is that they did the right things, but they didn't do it for the right reasons. And that is something that we can see in our own church and our own lives as well. A lot of times we are doing the right things and it kind of becomes customary to do those things, and yet we, do, we don't do it in the spirit of Christ. Um, and that's why I think the, the vertical love is primary. Is it, It's not that they didn't have it, it's that they left it kind of behind them. They were a working church, an involved church, an active church, and they were moving forward, following the dictates. They were certainly obeying a lot of the commands of, of Scripture. And yet, the why kind of was left behind, whereas the what is what they were pursuing. And yet, Jesus says, do the first works, but don't leave this other undone. You've got to do the what with the why. Um, I mean, sometimes when we come to church, it can be a habit, and it's a good habit to do, um, you know, and pursuing the things that God wants us to do. You know, we have various ministries, you know, teaching Sunday school or Good News Club or going to the nursing home, and, and sometimes we forget why we're doing it, and we're, and we're not doing it out of a motivation of love for the Lord and love for the church and love for others. And so it's the what and the why coming together. And I think that was their problem. Oh, it was, a, it was a working church. I mean, from the world's perspective, they would have looked at that church and said, wow, what an amazing church. They've got so many activities. They're so driven. They're so faithful. But Jesus knew the real heart. He, you know, he doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. And he knew that there were some real things going on there, and they were just leaving that love behind them. All right. Second message to the second church. Uh, this is what we find there in verses 8 through 11. Uh, it's probably the, the shortest of the letters here, um, but it's to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And, of course, that's the first part. Uh, Jesus is commissioned for John to write, and I'd like to read the message in its entirety before we move on to its parts. Under the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive, 
I, th I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be, may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto churches. So remember, a message to one is a message to all. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And I think as we're reading through that letter, that message, we can discern the seven parts that we found also in the first letter to the church of the, uh, there in Ephesus. And we're only going to be able to cover a, a few of them today. But the first part is Jesus' commission for John to write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Of course, Smyrna was not only the second city to be addressed, it was also, from this map, the second city in the circuit of cities where the book of Revelation was to be delivered. So, again, there's just a natural progression of this circular letter going from city to city. Uh, I would imagine that the church in Ephesus would want their own copy, and so they probably wrote it down and sent the original on its way, just according to what the Lord had for them to do. Now, from what we know about the ancient city of Smyrna, like Ephesus, it too was a very proud city. So, uh, again, a lot of times a church might take on the character of a culture, and it's very tempting when you see the pride of a culture to take on that pride even as a city. That was going on in Ephesus. question is, about 35 or 40 miles north of Ephesus, was that going to take place here in the city of Smyrna? Now, one of the reasons for the pride of this city was it, was cons or it considered itself to be a first city. A first city, or a city of firsts. On a coin that was discovered from the time period in which this letter was written, there's an actu actually an inscription that describes Smyrna as first in Asia. Uh, now, from what we learned about Ephesus last week, they probably would have taken issue with that, <laughs> saying, no, we're first. And actually, there were three cities that considered themselves first in Asia. Ephesus, Smyrna, and as we'll see later, Pergamos. And so they all kind of vied for that title, first in Asia. And whether that was true or not, it was debated, but this is what the Smyrna people thought about themselves. They took pride in the fact of their history, of their culture, of their city, of the things within their city. So it was considered, they considered themselves to be number one. Uh, it was also considered to be a first and primary city in Asia because it had a good harbor. Uh, this is a reconstruction of what it might have looked like. Uh, this harbor rivaled the one at Ephesus. In fact, we know the problem with the harbor in Ephesus was it kept getting filled up with silt. <laughs> And so Ephesus had to move, the center of Ephesus had moved five times. And the, the third time that it moved, that's what we're most familiar with uh, when you look at the archaeology there. Um, but the city here in Ephesus had a good harbor. It still is a good harbor. And it was known as the doorkeeper of the world. And so if you couldn't deliver your stuff at Ephesus, you'd move up here to Smyrna. And there were all kinds of roads that led to and from Smyrna, and they can get their stuff out. And so that was what made Smyrna a very popular and prominent city. It was also a convenient starting point for a land road to the east. And I think here is a uh, picture of the Agora. 
the marketplace in Smyrna. And again, it rivaled the marketplace in Ephesus. And the way to the marketplace was no different than in Ephesus. Uh, to really be able to sell your wares, you had to be in allegiance to Rome and allegiance to the emperor himself. And there were little acts that you had to do to show that. You take a pinch of incense and burn it before the statue of whatever emperor was there. And then you, that was your ticket. That was your price of admission. You could get in there. Um, so it was a, a very prominent place. Um, today, Smyrna is the only city out of the seven mentioned in Revelation that is still in existence. And this is a picture of the modern Turkish city of Izmir. And so you can kind of even hear the name, Izmir, Smyrna, very similar. Um, it was actually an early city in Turkey itself, in Asia Minor. It was um, formed, I think, about 3000 BC, they would say. And, you know, over time, of course, the city would be destroyed and then rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. Uh, in 600 BC, there was a, a time where they came in and were utterly destroyed. And about 300 BC, when Alexander the Great came in and he heard all the lore, all the history, all the stories about Smyrna, he thought this is a city that's worthy to be rebuilt. And so he rebuilt it. And so it was basically resurrected. It was reborn and became the city that it was in Paul's day and in John's day. Um, Izmir today is actually the third largest city in Turkey. So it's still very prominent, still very proud of that history. And it has the second largest port in all of Turkey. So it's still an important city. Um, just outside Smyrna, uh, there arose what was called in antiquity the Crown of Smyrna. Um, of course, there's a lot of hills and mountains in Turkey, and the prominent one that would rise over the city was Mount Pagas, and it was known as the Crown of Smyrna. Uh, it wasn't a huge peak. It kind of rounded at the top, and so basically that was sort of the Acropolis. That was where the, they would have the castle and the keep, and so if there were battles or anything, they would run to higher ground, and that's where they went. So there was a castle that was visible from below. They had walls around that castle. And also, moving up that mountain, moving up that hill, they had a street, and it was called the Street of Gold. And it may very well have been colorized as gold, or it could have been you know, plated with gold, but it was known as the Street of Gold. And it was said to be like a necklace adorning a hill. So if you imagine this being the head, and, and the, around it was this necklace of a, a golden street. And on either end were two major temples, uh, one was to, I think, Apollo, and the other one was to Cybele's. And that golden street went from one to the other, and then there were a few other false temples along the way. But that was some of their crowning achievements in the city of Smyrna. It was a place that you would go to and be impressed with what man had done. Uh, so the city was an impressive city, and it was proud of its beauty and size. And in fact, that is another description that you would find on one of their coins, first in beauty and first in size. Where it seems like Ephesus might have been more of a, an industrial marketplace, uh, this seems to be more of a, uh, a place for the upper class, if you will. Uh, this was a place that people would come to be the, where the owners of these businesses that might run in Pergamos and Ephesus, they might have their homes uh, right here. But it was also a proud city, not just because they thought themselves to be first, but they also considered themselves, and they really were considered to be a faithful city. A faithful city primarily to the people and to the city and the culture of Rome. 
And the interesting thing is that they were committed to Rome before Rome ever became a power. In fact, the Roman orator, Cicero, who lived before Christ, he even called Smyrna the city of our most faithful and ancient allies. And so before Rome even became prominent in, in any worldwide sense, Smyrna kind of saw the writing on the wall, and, and they appreciated their culture, and they wanted to be allies with the city of Rome. It was the first city to, uh, it was actually the first city in the Roman province of Asia. So think of all of these letters and all of these seven cities, and of course there's more cities in this area. This was the first city to build a temple to or for the Roman goddess Roma in 200 BC. Um, so this is just when Rome is starting to build power, starting to come on the scene, and, and there were 11 cities that said, we want to build outside of Rome, outside of Italy, a temple for your goddess. And they actually won that. They got that privilege, if you will. Um, one writer says that this temple was a pledge of uncompromising adherence to the cause of Rome, even while its fortunes, Rome's fortunes, were still uncertain. And so those are the kind of allies you want, right? <laughs> the allies that are going to be with you, thick and thin. Well, that was what Smyrna was. And so it was first in its alliance and commitment to Rome. It was also the first city in Asia to be rewarded with a temple for the Roman emperor Tiberius. So this is around the time of Christ, uh, 26 AD. Um, they said, we want to have not just a temple for the Roman goddess, we want to start worshiping the Roman emperors as gods. And so this is kind of how this emperor cult actually came into the, uh, the countries and the cities in Asia. Um, Smyrna was so well known for its allegiance to Rome that they worshipped it and its leaders. So you can kind of already see why conflict could be on the horizon for a faithful church living, living in this kind of proud and pagan city that was simply devoted to the worship of men. In fact, one of the, the ways that you would show your allegiance as a citizen of Smyrna to Rome is that you would have to say Caesar is Lord. And again, you can kind of see that there's an issue there even for believers, right? I can't say Caesar is Lord, Master. I can say that Caesar is Caesar. I can render unto, the, unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But I cannot render to Caesar the things that are God's. And that appellation, that name, that title, Lord, Master, belongs to Jesus Christ alone. And so you can see the, the conflict coming on the horizon. But then to encourage the faithful Christians, and of course we read already that this church in Smyrna would be considered a persecuted church, right? Uh, be faithful even unto death. But to encourage him, we find the second part, and of course we spent a little bit more time looking at this, the second part, which is Jesus' character. Jesus' character, which at the outset reminds them that Jesus is far greater than anyone or anything in their city, right? I mean, just how impressive that hill might have been, and the street of gold might have been, and all those impressive um, temples and the impressive history of Smyrna was nothing compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says in verse 8, I am the first and the last which was dead and is alive. 
If you remember, the history of Smyrna was one of constant renovation, uh, where it was destroyed, and then years later it would be restored. It'd be destroyed and then restored. And so they had kind of this history of resurrection, if you will. And yet, the fact is, Smyrna would go through that cycle again and again over time. But Jesus says, I was dead, but I am alive. And that cycle is ended with him. There's no further destruction for Jesus. He came back alive, and he remains alive forevermore. And so, of course, with these descriptions, Jesus reminds the church about the greatness of his person. I am the first and the last. Smyrna thinks it's the first in Asia. I am the first of everything and the last of everything. And, of course, this is what John heard Jesus say back in his vision in chapter 1, verse 17. I am the first and the last. But then Jesus also reminds the church about the greatness of his power. I am the one who was dead and is alive. And, of course, that refers back to uh, the vision there in chapter 1, verse 18. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, Jesus says. Now, what a comfort that these great truths about Jesus will be for a church that's about to face persecution from the proud city in which it resided. So even though death might be on the scene for them, yet Jesus says, I am the first and the last, and I was dead. Just like some of you will die, but I'm alive. And because of what Jesus said in the Gospels, because I live, you shall live also. What comfort there is to a church that's about to face persecution. Of course, we spent a little more time looking at that earlier. But then that brings us to the third part of the letter, and that's Jesus' comprehension of the church. And the formula, the familiar formula there in verse 9 is, I know thy, what? Works. But just like the church in Ephesus... He knows much more about them than just their works, right? He knew everything about them. Uh, if you, again, consider that word works, he knew all about their pursuits. He knew all about their pursuits. And their works were without any doubt commendable to the Lord, just like the works in Ephesus. But in this situation, it seems like their heart was with their works. It wasn't just what they were doing for the Lord, it was also why. They, they did it with the, the, the first works with the first love. And so their works were distinct and different from the culture of the world and the city around them, and that actually made them targets for what we see next that Jesus knows about them. He knew about their pressure, all about their pressure. Again, verse 9, I know thy works and what? Tribulation, right? Their tribulation. Another way that can be translated is affliction. And so it's clear that they faced affliction, some kind of affliction up to that point. Um, it was pressure because they had been living in, as lights in a dark world. They'd been living as faithful believers with faith-filled works in a faithless generation there in the city. But Jesus himself said that that's something that all Christians and all churches will expect and ought to expect in this world in which we live. Uh, we looked at this a few Sunday nights ago in John 16, 33. You don't need to turn there. Jesus says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world, in this cosmos, you shall have what? Tribulation, affliction. Same word here. But be of good cheer, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. So this kind of pressure, this kind of persecution, this kind of affliction will be a common theme as we move through the book of Revelation. So kind of keep this in mind to the church there in Smyrna. It's something that many believers are going to face all throughout the book of Revelation. 
Uh, something else Jesus knows about them in verse 9. Jesus knew about their works, their tribulation, and what else? Their, their poverty, right? Their poverty. It seems that because of their outstanding works for Jesus, they lost some things because of their stance for Christ. They were destitute in some ways. Uh, there are many who believe that this would refer to many in the church losing their homes because they've lost their livelihoods. And we may actually get to this point in our own country, sadly, even as some Christians are facing even today in other countries, where because they are following after Christ, the way the church in Smyrna followed after Christ, that because of that stance for Christ, you know, they're going to be blacklisted and not be able to do the things that they would normally do, not be able to have their stall in the marketplace because they will not burn just a pinch of incense for Caesar. They will not say Caesar is Lord and get a certificate saying that they, that they had done that or made some kind of sacrifice to Caesar. They can't do that, and so they're going to take away their livelihoods. They're probably going to not have their homes like they used to. They may just have trouble making ends meet. But the Lord says, I know that poverty. Imagine what that must have felt like. Maybe some of those Christians in that church might have thought, well, I thought the Lord said he will never leave us or forsake us. And yet it sure seems like we're being forsook. We're losing all of these things. Well, what does Jesus say next? I know thy poverty, but thou art what? Rich. You're rich. So things weren't all that they seemed to be for the church there in Smyrna. It seems like you're in poverty from the outside, but truly inside, within your own spirit, within your own soul, within the body of Christ, you are truly rich. Their poverty was just a perception because it only dealt with the earthly and material things that wouldn't last anyways. The reality was they were rich, and that's a present tense. They are rich in the things that mattered most and in the things that would last the longest. And, of course, that is something we, too, still need to remember. Even if we face what they faced, where we might lose everything in this world. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be rich. So even though Christians might seem to the world or sometimes even feel like to ourselves that we are in poverty, we need to remember, but thou art rich. That's the truth. Um, then we go to ver continue on there, verse 9. Jesus also knew about their persecutors and all about their persecutors. And this is one of the main challenges that the church in Smyrna faced. Uh, he goes on, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So there was at least one group that was causing the church's tribulation, and the, the most likely interpretation of verse 9 is that they were Jewish residents in the city itself. Uh, because in Smyrna, just like so many others in the Roman Empire, they made up a significant percentage of the population. There are some estimates that in every city, every major city, some 10% would have been Jews that had, you know, had been spread through the, the diaspora um, and had just never left. They certainly would go back to Israel for their times of worship and celebration. 
um, but they kind of would go home and they would stay there. And so 10% of the population. About 80 AD, um, up until 80 AD, the Christians were considered just a sect of the Jews. And so they received relative um, freedom of religion, just like the Jews had received some freedom of religion. They were not required to say Caesar is Lord uh, because they had, again, 10% of the population. <laughs> and so they... You know, they accommodated the Jews. At least they bared with them for a little while. There were a couple times in Rome where they'd cast the Jews out, then the Jews would filter back in. But about 80 AD, the Jews basically said, Christians are not part of us. They are not included in us. And they cast them out of the synagogue. And they said, you are not allowed here. You're not allowed to worship here. In fact, we're going to come up with a statement that you would have to say that is contrary to the faith of Christ. And so they basically were anathematized from the, from the, the synagogue, from the Jewish people. Um, and so they were a significant cause of affliction, tribulation, persecution to the Christians in these cities. Uh, this was also the case in uh, Philadelphia. If you look down to chapter 3, verse 9, Jesus says there, again, to another uh, faithful church, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan. So he uses that same term referring to the Jewish place of worship in these foreign cities, which say they are Jews but are not, but they do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. And so the Jewish people in these cities were likely the ones who instigated the city as a whole to persecute the Christians. They might have experienced a certain degree of freedom of religion, but then they started to point out these Christians, listen to what they're saying. They're following one individual as their Lord, and they're not able to say Caesar is Lord. And so they would have, um, they would have been the instigators of that. Now, by doing so, Jesus says that they are committing blasphemy. They are committing blasphemy. Now, the word blasphemy we find throughout the New Testament simply means to speak evil about someone in a slanderous way. So they're not telling the truth, right? And they're slandering someone. And so what we find here is Jesus is basically saying that the, what the Jewish people did to Christ when he was on earth, they continued to do to his church. They blasphemed Jesus all throughout his life and ministry, didn't they? And that was no different here in Smyrna. You see, the Jews rejected the claims of Jesus as the Son of God, and now they were rejecting the commitment of Christians to Jesus as the Son of God. And yet, they had the audacity and the pride to consider themselves to be the true people and servants of God as Jews. So again, they say they're Jews, Jesus says, but in reality they aren't, and because all of that was blasphemy. Now, of course, we know that the Jewish people, uh, under the old covenant of the Old Testament, were considered to be the chosen people of God, and certainly they received a lot of those blessings and benefits. We uh, talked a little bit about that yesterday in our men's Bible study. But here are some Jews that claim to be Jews, but they were in fact not. But they made up the synagogue of Satan. Now, this is, it's possible that these were proselytes. These were people that got into the synagogue. They might have been Greeks and became Jews. Um, but whatever the case, whether they were national Jews based on their connection to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, or they were even proselytes, ultimately they were committing blasphemy because they were part of a different congregation. The congregation and family of the devil himself. Now, Jesus actually introduced this theme of 
people that said they're Jews, but really were not. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 44, he speaks to the Jewish leaders, and we looked at this in one of our Sunday morning messages. In John 8, 44, he says to these Jewish leaders, you are of your father, the devil. Now, remember what they were taking pride in? We're, we have Abraham as our father, right? Jesus says, no. Maybe nationally, maybe genealogically, but spiritually you have nothing to do with Abraham. You are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and bode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and of the father of it. So basically, the Jews claim to have Abraham as their father. And even though that was true in a natural sense, it was not true in a spiritual sense. So they were Jews, but they lied. Then the Apostle Paul picks up the same theme in Romans 2.28. And he shows that this idea of being a Jew is not just a national thing. It really is a spiritual thing because we're under the new covenant now. And so when we come to an understanding of, of what it really means to be a follower of Christ, to be really chosen of Christ, it's not an outward thing, it's an internal thing. And Paul says, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew. He is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And the circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men, but of God. So a true Jew was, and still is, one who had the faith of Abraham, even if they were not part of the natural family of Abraham. And I think that's a consistent theme that we find in the New Testament, especially. A, a distinction between the natural, national Israel and this new spiritual family, which at times is described as Israel, as Jews. And that is something that we need to keep in mind, a difference that we need to keep in mind as we move forward in Revelation. That there are some who would say they're Jews, and they may in fact naturally be Jews, but in reality they're not because they're blaspheming what the Jewish people really all about. It was to bring forward this Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is a church to do when they find themselves under this kind of pressure and persecution? even from people that claim to be part of the family of God. Well, that's what we will consider next week when we pick up there in verse 10, uh, where we look at the fourth part of the letter, which is Jesus' commands to this faithful and persecuted church. All right, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this letter that you wrote to the church there in, in Smyrna and Ephesus. And Lord, I pray that we will apply the lessons that we learn, even though we right now may not experience the kind of persecution that they were about to. Uh, but Lord, it may come upon us sooner than we think. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you will help us to heed what we hear and to comply with even the commands that we're going to hear next week in order to remain faithful, even under that pressure and persecution that we will face. Father, we pray that you'll bless our service to follow, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.